Here on Gadget Lab, we dive deep into the tech universe, tackling questions like, is giving companies access to your genetic material a good idea? And are the latest phone releases really that different than the last ones? We want to help you make informed decisions about what is worth your attention. And here's something that is undeniably worth your time, a digital subscription to Wired. Lucky for you, we are giving Gadget Lab listeners an exclusive discount, 20% off an annual subscription to Wired. Just visit Wired.com and use the promo code GL20 to get 20% off a digital subscription. Use GL20 to get exclusive access to stories on the latest innovations like AI, deepfakes, and VR, as well as today's most talked about people in technology. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Mike. Lauren. Are you ready for 2024? Um, aren't we already in 2024? No, no, no. I mean, the event of 2024, the U.S. presidential election. Oh, God. No, I am not ready. (laughs) Do I have a choice? (laughs) No pun intended. Choice. Okay. See what you did there. No, you really don't have one. We are, we're barreling towards November 2024. And not to bring everything on this show back to artificial intelligence, but I think it's safe to say that that is going to play a role in this year's election. Oh, gosh. I am afraid. Yep. We should talk about it. Okay, let's do it. Let's do it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired. And I'm Michael Calori. I'm the director of consumer tech and culture at Wired. Oh, your new title. Yeah, fancy new title. (laughs) I'm going to have to get used to saying that. We are also joined this week by Wired senior politics writer McKenna Kelly. Welcome to the show for the first time, McKenna. Hey, it's good to be here. And what a time to join after the first caucus (laughs) this week. Yeah, right now you are joining us from uh, a safe space in the Atlanta airport. (laughs) Thank you for making the effort to join us while you're in transit. (laughs) No, I mean, honestly, I'm playing with some new lactation room apps. Uh, It's actually wildly techy, more techy than I was expecting to find a room to do this in. So (laughs) maybe we should just make the show about your review of that, the the, uh, Mamava pods. Uh, (laughs) We should probably talk about Iowa too. Okay, so since everyone got their fill of gadgets on last week's CES episode of Gadget Lab, this week, we're headed back to reality. It's time to talk about politics. Okay, so before you turn off this podcast, because you're sick of hearing about politics, you really should stick around because we're going to give you some of the most clear cut information you can get on how exactly AI is going to play a role in this year's election. I think you're going to walk away from this podcast smarter, more informed, and probably slightly dismayed. So this year is an election year in the U.S. Just this week was the Iowa caucus, where, surprise, surprise, former President Donald Trump won the nomination for the Republican nominee for president. Let's talk about that first, and then we're going to come back to AI after that. McKenna, you're deep in election coverage already. How are you holding up? 
Um, well, that's a really good question. Uh, I spent all of last night in Iowa running around events. I think I got up and at, out the door on the road at 7 a.m. And then I was at a Vivek event. And then I went to a Don Jr. event and Don Jr. didn't show. And anyways, this all culminated into the votes happening, right? And I have not slept for 32 hours at this point. So I'm very excited to get home. Yeah, we're excited for you to get a nap on that flight home and hopefully a deep night's sleep after that. Mm-hmm. How, For people who don't know, quickly, how exactly does the, the Iowa caucus work? Right. So it's not different from any other primary in each state. Iowa, of course, is the first. Um, the Democratic Party is trying to change that and bring that to South Carolina now for them. But um, in Iowa, for a Republican caucus, essentially what happens is people in these precincts, kind of like districts, they show up to their precincts, Um, with all the people in their communities. And unlike the Democratic caucus in Iowa, the Republicans cast these secret ballots after having what I heard from talking to voters last night, very cordial conversations with one another. Um, And they file their ballots, the ballots are counted, and then the precinct is decided for whatever candidate gets the most votes. So what sort of demographic representation are there at the caucuses? Because it seems like when people go to the ballot box or when people show up to have these discussions, it might be two different types of people we're talking about. Sure. Um, You know, when I was traveling around this week, I think we have this idea in our head of what an early voter, a caucus voter, an early primary voter looks like. And it's typically maybe an older person, someone over 50. Um, who has maybe been engaged in the political process a little bit longer than others. Um, But I also did run into a lot of young people as well. Um, Many people who are out caucusing for the first time, even if, you know, they just hadn't turned, you know, 17, 18. And some people I talked to had caucused for the first time, and I think they were 34. So Mm -hmm. people were coming out, you know, from all over for this one. Um, And I think it's just because of the candidates. Um, But yeah, we can we can get to that. (laughs) Yeah, you've been TikToking and threading a lot over the past few days. And it seems like a lot of the constituents you saw there in Iowa are, in fact, pretty young. And it seems like the Republican Party has done a good job of galvanizing young voters. These also tend to be pretty tech savvy voters. Do you have a sense of how many of the folks you talk to, um, if any of them, consider tech policy to be an important part of this election cycle? Sure. So I might have a poor view of the entire party. I spent a lot of my time the past couple of days trekking um, Vivek Ramaswamy, who famously Chris Christie called a man who sounds like ChatGPT <laughs> um, in the August debate. Uh, so yes, there were a bunch of tech savvy kids there. I talked to some kids who were 17, 21, um, people in college, uh, young parents. And, you know, when you talk about tech savvy for them, I'm, I don't know if they're necessarily thinking about AI, you know, every waking moment of the day, but they are um, excited about people like Vivek um, and other candidates who are reaching them, you know, through the types of media that they consume, whether that be TikTok or Instagram and other social media platforms. So in the, in the past few elections, obviously, Twitter and Facebook have played an outsized role in uh, not only candidates having discussions with people online, but also like outreach and, you know, campaigning happening on those platforms. Are those platforms still powerful tools or are things like TikTok and even Instagram and threads also making a play this year? Okay, so maybe I'm biased, but my whole um, 
I don't know, magnum opus, what I'm following this year is really this fragmentation that we're seeing on social media and how that is affecting the democratic process. With Elon Musk buying X, Twitter, whatever I'm calling it, Twitter, um, and turning that into increasingly a right-wing cesspool, and then TikTok, of course, becoming really popular, not just with young people who are engaging with it every day. Um, you're seeing a lot of Democrats on there. I know Bernie was popular in 2020, um, but you're seeing, you know, different members of different parties and their audiences going to different platforms at this point in time. And of course, like we had True Social and these alternative social media sites. Truth has really just become a megaphone for Trump um, and Getter and Parler and all of those are dead. <laughs> but still that fragmentation that I think that they were inspired by or excited by those platforms um, is still making its way through, you know, the, the things that we're more familiar with, like Instagram and Twitter now. What does that fragmentation mean ultimately? If someone yeah. just if someone gravitates towards the app where they know they're gonna hear exactly what they want to hear, then isn't isn't that creating the famous echo chamber? Sure. And I also think it's partially, you know, having to do with policy. So when you look at the Republican Party, um, they are very aggressive on China. Um, the Chinese government's association with ByteDance, which owns TikTok, um, you won't see a lot of Republicans on the app solely, I think, basically for a policy reason. I think Vivek was really the only Republican, uh, major Republican, I say, you know, as he walks away with less than 8% of the vote last night. Mm -hmm. um, but he was really the only person trying to reach young people there. I think he saw an opportunity in that app, right, to be kind of the first adopter <laughs> in the party. Um, whereas we've seen, you know, Bernie was doing TikToks. And by when I say doing TikToks, he wasn't like dancing. That would be ridiculous. Um, but doing his like little Bernie shtick that he's been doing for, you know, how many decades just through, you know, a TikTok lens. And Fetterman, I mean, John Fetterman in Pennsylvania, he really played TikTok and a bunch of, you know, social platforms really well. Um in the what was it how many years has this been now um the 2022 <laughs> midterms right and so yeah i think i mean part of it has to do policy wise i think also it's just like older people i don't think you see chuck grassley you know the oldest senator <laughs> in the senate right now um he'll do push-ups on instagram but he's not going to be you know dancing to whatever like charlie d'amelia was doing and stuff like that <laughs> He's not getting like the special D'Amelio Dunkin' Donuts drink or anything and, and flexing it on TikTok. No, he likes to get his blizzards at Dairy Queen okay. um, and whatever you know what is. <laughs> if you remember that tweet. <laughs> <laughs> How exactly are candidates using AI in their campaign so far? Sure. So I think it's really interesting, mostly because like we saw with you know, TikTok and all of these apps in 2020 post-pandemic. Um, after the pandemic started, of course, and it, we're in the heat of the 2020 presidential election, uh, you can really do retail politics anymore. All of these venues were shut down. You can't see people and shake hands. And so it, campaigns really had to adapt quickly um, to the internet. Bernie was doing live streams. Joe Biden also did live streams and they started off really, really bad. Um, he had like a kind of garbled one, if I remember correctly, similar to like DeSantis's like uh, X announcement, like Twitter space that he did. Oh, right. But yeah, there were <laughs> terrible techni technical difficulties. Yeah. 
Right. So what we saw in 2020 with this like quick adoption, people having to carve out a playbook quickly on how you do this, how you do it right, um, with a lot of opportunity to be cringe. And we saw a lot of cringe in 2022. Um, And so what we're seeing with AI right now actually is kind of similar. So AI, of course, has been in whatever political software as, as it's been in like whatever software in any industry, right, forever. But when it comes to generative AI, what we're seeing is a lot of playfulness, um, people experimenting. Um, I think a lot of the campaign emails we're going to get soon are going to be created in, um, if not in ChatGPT, um, there's a lot of startups that are working right now to create their own um, kind of similar Uh, text generation thing where you feed in your best campaign emails, the ones that got you the most clicks, the most opens, the most donations, you feed that text into these models. Um, Quiller is one that has really taken off so far. That's the app um, that I think some, I think it's in its beta phase right now, but there's a lot of excitement right now in the Democratic Party for it. Um, But you feed in your best emails and then they'll give you out, you know, a simple draft of what you know, what it is that this one, this next one that's coming up um, should look like, depending on, you know, who you're targeting, what you're doing, what you're asking for. Uh, And it's a lot easier instead of sending, you know, what lower level uh, junior staffer to sit there and write an email that could take an hour, right? Um, If they're able to just ask for one, get it delivered and edit it, that takes maybe like 20 minutes and it's saving a campaign a lot of time. And when I talk to campaigns, the two resources that they're always fighting for is a money. We get text messages, we get emails, we get all of the calls asking for money. We're aware of that. Um, But it's also time. And you have these staffers who want to, you know, spend more time connecting with voters. And if they could save that time when it comes to, you know, generating an email or a text message, um, they're looking to take it. So I think text generation is a really, really big one we're going to see. Before we go to break, Mike, you had a question that we were going to save for the second half, but it was a really good one about speeches. Oh, yeah. So, McKenna, have you seen a speech yet where you're thinking like, okay, chat GPT wrote this? (laughs) Okay, you want to know what I (laughs) I think? I think most of Trump's speeches sound like AI, but it's just him. Uh, I don't know if I've watched enough of those that it's like, where is this coming from? Um, I feel like uh, Trump's brain works like a large language model sometimes, just hallucinating (laughs) and spitting stuff out. Um, That doesn't make quite a lot of sense. But um, yeah, no, nothing in specific. But I have taken to when I see like a campaign email that comes by, I used to when ChatGPT, uh, OpenAI had that like check to see if this was um, AI generated. I used to throw those in there and um, see if they were. And I, I haven't found one that had, you know, like a really close to, you know, 90% likelihood that it was AI generated. So that was months ago. And so I think we're going to see a lot of that crop up now, too, especially as people start hitting the trail outside of the presidential election as well. You know, we still have House people up for election. We still have Senate elections up. And those are going to be the people who are going to be short for resources, right? Um, Biden is always going to have a lot of money. Trump is always going to have a lot of money. Um, All the national candidates have the Koch brothers, whoever behind them. uh, And you're going to see people, especially insurgent candidates, doing some creative stuff in the next year or so. All right, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back with more. 
This podcast is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Each episode features insight you won't find anywhere else from the center of the conversation surrounding emerging technologies like AI. Right now on the podcast, you can hear a special episode where Brad Smith lays out Microsoft's vision for a vibrant marketplace driving the new AI economy. To hear more, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Luna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Okay, so there has obviously been a lot of concern about disinformation in the media during election seasons. We talked about this earlier this year. Was it last year? Last year with our colleague David Gilbert. But this 2024 cycle is poised to hit a new level. This is the generative AI era where images and voices and videos can all just be manufactured almost instantly by anyone, whether they depict something true or something completely made up. It's going to make for a very strange, uncanny election season. So, McKenna, we know that companies like OpenAI do have policies in place that are supposed to prevent campaigns or campaign managers from using ChatGPT to just spit out tons and tons and tons of campaign messaging using AI, right? They're trying to keep this space as healthy as possible. But also, there are other products out there aside from ChatGPT, right? People are building other tools. Uh, There are workarounds. What are you seeing out in the field? Sure. So, I mean, I think it was Chris Christie who created that like Donald Duck meme, uh, the Donald Trump duck thing with like chat or with a dolly a couple months ago. And it was a really cringe meme. So they're doing that when it comes to content creation, for sure. But when you're looking at, you know, things that might actually fool someone, I know like the uh, DeSantis super PAC never back down was just using what seemed to be like the... Um, video and image generation tools in Adobe Premiere to create ads by just injecting fighter jets into the back of the skies that they had shot for an ad. Um, so that's was, what one was the thing. point of the fighter jets? Is that supposed to be like I think it's just manly. It's just like testosterone. I think it was just, you know, pro-America eagle screech uh-huh. uh, vibes. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, you're seeing things like that. So like even just Adobe is a huge tool for campaigns. And then... I mean, (laughs) a big thing happening, especially after 2008 um, and Obama won and used uh, social media and tech really effectively was people started getting into and creating, you know, specific tech products. And now we're seeing a bunch of um, startups, campaign tech startups like Quiller, as I mentioned, but also a bunch of others that are creating their own large language models um, to, you know, serve uh, campaigns, democratic campaigns are, you know, the focus of it, what I'm seeing so far, but creating their own like large language models um, that they can then charge campaigns a lot of money for, right? Um, and not have the types of rules that OpenAI does because, well, 
<laughs> they wouldn't be. OpenAI has all of these rules because they don't want to be liable, right, for a lot of the content that campaigns make. Well, if you're working with a democratic uh, AI tech vendor, right? They're most of the, I, I'm assuming that they're probably fine with you doing typical, you know, political campaign stuff, especially because they're typically smaller companies, uh, startups that don't have as much heat on them as, you know, a huge company like OpenAI in this moment. It's also very expensive to build your own LLM, right? So I imagine that they must be using some open source foundational model first and then building some like some app on top of that. That's what I'm assuming. But honestly, you know, from covering this beat for as many years as I'm doing it now, campaigns are pretty techy. I mean, <laughs> talk about thinking and considering how to use AI ethically and effectively in a campaign. I was reminded that Biden 2020 has a director of engineering, right? And I, I talked to him the other week and I was like, oh, yeah, campaigns have directors of engineering. They have people who are working on, you know, huge tech products, you know, building infrastructure for campaigns. And this is mostly national campaigns, right? Um, but those folks are out there and it's a huge part of just running, you know, any old campaign, you know, whether it be every two years, six years or four years. Well, still, the campaigns can't just do whatever they want because they are also um, being watched by federal election officials and state election officials. In what ways have the governing bodies that oversee elections, um, you know, put any sort of guardrails up around generative AI tools? That is where I think I would interject a sad trombone sound um, <laughs> at this moment <laughs> because... Uh, the Federal Elections Commission, like you mentioned, would be the agency in charge here. And they have not done too much when it comes to regulating elections for a very long time. And so recently, when we saw those DeSantis ads go up and we saw campaigns starting to toy with um, AI and, um, you know, image generation, video generation, all that kind of stuff in their ads, um, there became people, of course, got a little upset and were like, well, uh, is there a disclosure anywhere? Like when I hear a, and now we're all going to hear them, you know, for the next year. But when I see an ad on television and it's paid by a super PAC, that needs to be disclosed at the end, right? It's this ad was paid for by Ron DeSantis or Never Back Down or America First or whatever all those um, super PACs are. That has to be disclosed at the end. Right now, under federal law, you can just have the eagle screeching fighter jets thrown in the back of your ad, right? And not even tell people that they're fake. And so there's been a handful of petitions. I know um, Public Citizen as one, they're kind of a, you know, election watchdog group has tried to petition the FEC to create rules requiring similar disclosures when it comes to AI generation uh, and ads, but it hasn't moved anywhere. Uh, Representative Yvette Clark from New York and then Senator Amy Klobuchar in Minnesota they have worked on a bill to institute that at the legislative level, not going anywhere right now either. And, you know, I think when we have these conversations about tech, whether it's in elections or just tech policy, uh, these things never really tend to happen until something really breaks. <laughs> and even then, like when we're thinking of like Cambridge Analytica and Facebook meta, whatever, Nothing really came of that either. And so, sadly, I think people are waiting almost for the system to break, for something to go really, 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 really wrong um, before people act. Um, 
Because, yeah, we're heading into election year. A lot of the people who are legislators are now up for election. And maybe that's their main priority right now. I feel like most people have a pretty good bullshit meter when it comes to deep fakes and memes, uh, you know, videos that show politicians saying something that they didn't really say or a meme that makes it look like, you know, they have they said a quote that they didn't actually say or passing along some sort of message or supporting a particular group. You know, I feel like most people in the United States would see that and they'd say, uh, that doesn't really feel right. And if it's outrageous, like you were saying, like the really big things that break the system, then that makes news and then more people are talking about it and it kind of, you know, undermines that sort of tactic uh to to discredit somebody or to make them appear as though they said something they didn't say. As the tools are getting better, that's probably a harder line to define, right? Like as things look better and as the videos are more convincing and as the memes are more convincing, then it becomes harder for people to make that decision themselves, right? Sure. And I mean, at that point, who are we relying on? We're relying on the platforms, right, to enforce their policies. We've seen how that's gone in multiple election cycles. And then also, you know, when I think about, we talk about deep fakes being relatively easy to spot. Um, there's two things. And one was, I don't know if anybody remembers, but the Nancy Pelosi drunk video on Facebook where she was like apparently slurring her words. That wasn't even a deep fake. That was just someone slowing down um, a video in a way that I think, I mean, for me, I spend what every day on the internet, every hour of every day, I can kind of spot that. But, you know, someone who's maybe older, someone who maybe wants to believe that that's what that is, right? Um, they're maybe more susceptible. And like to think about a really big scam going on right now are scammers using AI-generated versions of someone's voice to call their elderly parents or whoever and convince them that they're in trouble. They're at, they've been, you know, they're in jail. They need bail money. Can you wire me bail money using this voice? And you would think that you'd be able to tell, right, um, that this is your loved one, this is your mother, your sister, your brother, and know their voice and, you know, know whether this is a fake AI generation. But people are falling for that, too. So if you don't even know who your family member is, right, if you can't even, you know, recognize that difference, then I think it's hard for someone to recognize the difference, you know, with maybe someone they just hear in um, sound bites on the Internet or on the news. And that is the part I mentioned earlier where you might leave this podcast feeling a bit dismayed. <laughs> we have to leave it there. And unfortunately, we're not going to come to all of the solutions on this one episode. But McKenna, this has been super informative. We really appreciate you joining us once again from an airport. <laughs> Stick around because after the break, we're going to do our recommendations. Hackers and cybercriminals have always held this kind of special fascination. Obviously, I can't tell you too much about what I do. It's a game. Who's the best hacker? And I was like, well, this is child's play. I'm Dina Temple Raston, and on the Click Here podcast, you'll meet them and the people trying to stop them. We're not afraid of the attack. We're afraid of the creativity and the intelligence of the human being behind it. Click Here, stories about the people making and breaking our digital world. AI machines, satellite, engine ignition, click here, and liftoff. Click here every Tuesday and Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. All right, McKenna, as our guest of honor, what is your recommendation this week? Um, okay, so I didn't have a lot of time to think about this, but the one thing that really saved my life, I don't know 
if anyone was paying attention, but Iowa was very cold <laughs> the past couple days. Um, on Sunday, it got to negative 19 when I left my hotel. And I was very grateful for Uniqlo underlayers, their heat tech. Um, those really saved my life. The pants, the shirt. Uh, I'm really, really glad that I brought those. Are those the kind that have the sort of reflective material on the inside and it reflects body heat back to you? Yes, I think that's what it does. You know, I just wear them underneath my clothes and I was a little warm. I think the coldest part of me were my toes and I had to go buy new socks at Target after some event. <laughs> <laughs> How much do these base layers cost? Um, They can't cost too much. It is Uniqlo and I know that they're... I feel like I love Uniqlo because they're typically the clothing there is typically very affordable and they it, for, from the stuff that I bought it lasts a while. I wish I knew the price, but this is something that my husband gets all our family members for Christmas every year and I am always eternally grateful for it. That's a very good gift. That's mm -hmm. thoughtful. Thoughtful. He's man. really good at practical gifts. Yeah. Yeah, base layers. Well, hopefully when uh, you get a little downtime after all this campaign coverage, you can go on a ski trip or something and use them. Um, so actually, funny story. Uh, my husband's aunt owns, has a ski house in New Hampshire, and she is begging me to come out to the primaries. So I am really considering it because I've never skied before, and I would really like to learn. So, Well, um, don't break a leg. That's all I have to say. <laughs> but that sounds delightful. <laughs> Well, thank you for that recommendation, McKenna. Mike, what's your recommendation this week? I'm going to recommend a television show. It just wrapped, so the entire thing is available to stream. It's called The Curse, and it is on Showtime, which I think is now also called Paramount Plus, but I'm just going to keep calling it Showtime. They have to stop changing the names of things. So The Curse uh, is a new show from the minds of Nathan Fielder and Benny Safdie. So it is extremely cringe. The whole show is, a, it will just make you deeply uncomfortable in absolutely the best way. The stars of the show are Nathan Fielder and Emma Stone, who's having a moment. We love Emma Stone. Uh, this show cements her as like possibly the greatest actress of her generation. Uh, she her, her performance in it is fantastic. Story, uh, I won't give too much away. It's about a couple that does a reality show for like an HGTV style network. It's called Flipanthropy, where they buy old properties in their hometown in uh, sort of exurban Santa Fe, New Mexico. Uh, which there's, it's a community where it's kind of run down. Uh, there's a lot of indigenous people living in the community. And uh, they are trying really, really hard not to be the white gentrifiers. Uh, they're deeply selfish people, so of course they fail at that, and they fail at almost everything. Uh, and the show takes a couple of very unexpected, dramatic turns. It is funny, it is difficult to watch, and the ending is absolutely the best ending of any TV show that I've seen in recent memory. Um, Lauren, I know you just started watching it. I did. First episode. And if you have not started watching it, I, I will recommend, in addition to recommending watching the show do not read about the show because okay. if you read about the show it will probably spoil the ending for you because the ending was so divisive and so wild there's a lot of ink being written right now <laughs> this this week the week of the 15th about the ending which just 
aired. So if you're starting to watch The Curse, go on Curse Media Blackout as best you can until you finish it and then read all of them and tweet at me and, and tell me what you think. That's a great recommendation. I actually subscribed to Paramount Plus just to watch it. And I have like seven days for a free trial, but I'm super busy this week. So I'm like, oh no, can I fit in the whole season in seven days? I probably can't. It's 10 episodes. Paramount. No, I definitely can't then. Paramount Plus has me in their clutches now. Yeah. Well, you know, get get through as much of it as you can and then, you know, pay the 10 bucks to finish it. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you for that, Mike. Sure. Also, Benny Safdie is kind of your doppelganger. (laughs) Do you think I look like it? Yeah. And it took me a moment to realize, it took me almost the entire first episode to realize that was Benny Safdie. I was like, oh my God. Yeah. Good Total physical. greaseball producer. Physical transformation. Yeah. He's very good on the show. Yeah. Everybody's very good on the show. Uh, anyway, what is your recommendation? My recommendation is also a TV show. It's called, I'm very behind on this, Catastrophe. When I started watching Catastrophe, because it was available on Amazon Prime Video and I was looking for something to watch that was half hour, digestible episodes... I realized that it came out in 2015 and my brain did this thing where I thought, oh, okay, it's just a few years old. And I was like, oh my God, that was almost a decade ago. (laughs) (laughs) Now 2015 is almost a decade ago. What has happened? Um, Anyway, it stars Sharon Horgan and Rob Delaney, who also write the show. They star as characters named Sharon and Rob. And the very first episode, they have um, a week-long fling in London where Sharon's character is based and Rob is visiting on business. And it results in a pregnancy, an unplanned pregnancy. And uh, they decide to move ahead with it and not only move ahead with it, but also, I mean, have a relationship and eventually get married and build a family and move to London and deal with in-laws. And they just go all in. And the thing is about Sharon, both Sharon Horgan and Rob Delaney is that they're both deeply funny but heartfelt people. And I think the show really reflects that. There's four seasons and um, it's just I, I can't believe I'm so late to this because once again, like the finale, a lot of ink was spilled on the finale because it ends in a kind of ambiguous and slightly ominous way. But it's uh, it's really good. And I'm just I'm glad, even though a lot of you listening have maybe already seen it because it's nearly 10 years old. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm glad that I discovered this and am watching it late and um yeah, there are also some references in there to like Brexit and Trump and things like that going on at the time that they were happening. And of course, it's all pre-pandemic, too. So it's just it's a time warp. But put that aside and just enjoy the dialogue and the dynamic between these two uh, wonderful writers and actors. Solid. All right. That is our show this week. McKenna, thank you again for joining us. We hope to have you back on, hopefully from a more comfortable place on your end. <laughs> of course. And thank you all for listening. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on the social media sites. Just check the show notes. Our producer is the excellent Boone Ashworth, also known as Mr. Redundancy. Goodbye for now. We'll be back next week. You should say also known as Mr. Redundancy a few more times just so he exactly. has it. Also known as Mr. Redundancy. <laughs> also Our known producer, as Mr. Redundancy. Also known as Mr. Redundancy. Also known as Mr. Redundancy. (laughs) Wait, sorry, can I get that one more time? (laughs) Also known as Mr. Redundancy. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on, of course you do. Introducing The Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. 
Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes, authors, and scientists, to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, B as in boy, I, N as in Nancy, G-E-R, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.